questions and answers. How do you explain the contradictions in the Gospels of the events of Jesus' resurrection? Why are there four different and contradictory accounts of the resurrection if the Gospel writers are writing about the same event? Do you think Christians can be demonized? You're tuned to Evidence and Answers radio broadcast with your host, Pat Zucran. Pat is an international teacher, speaker, and author in the area of Christian apologetics, the defense of the Christian faith. Today, we will be listening to a message that was taken from our 2020 Evian Youth Apologetics Conference. Annually, Pat brings in guests from all over to teach and equip the youth of today. Let's listen as Pat answers some of the challenging questions here in part four of this series, Tough Questions Teens Ask. You're listening to Evidence and Answers, where we provide compelling evidence for faith and hope in Christ and biblical answers to the challenges of today. Well, at our recent Youth Apologetics Conference, teens were able to ask us tough questions on anything they wanted. And at our conference, the Q&A time is one of the favorite times for our young people where they can ask myself and the other speakers any questions they want regarding the Christian faith. And so they asked us a bunch of questions. We were able only to answer a few during the conference on stage there, but I've collected several of their questions, many of their questions, and been trying to answer many of them on our series here, Tough Questions Teens Ask. I divided them into several sections. Part one and two, we answered questions regarding basic apologetics. In section two here, we're answering some of their tough Bible questions. And so the first question is, how do you respond to the, quote, selective interpretation of Old Testament laws? Some laws we take literally and some we only apply concepts. Or do we not follow the Old Testament laws because of Jesus? Well, that's a good question here. And the question is, what is the relationship of the Old Testament law to the believer today? Well, that answer is found, you know, in the book of Romans. Romans chapter 7 says, Do you not know, brothers and sisters, for I'm speaking to those who know the law, that the law has authority over someone only as long as that person lives? For example, by law, a married woman is bound to her husband as long as he is alive. But if her husband dies, she is released from the law that binds her to him. So then if she has sexual relations with another man while her husband is still alive, she is called an adulteress. But if her husband dies, she is released from that law and is not an adulteress if she marries another man. So, my brothers, you also die to the law through the body of Christ so that you might belong to another, to him raised from the dead, in order that we might bear the fruit of God. So what Paul is saying here is that the Old Testament law, when Jesus died on the cross and he said, it is finished, Jesus fulfilled the requirements of the Old Testament law. So we are no longer under the Old Testament law. Well, what law are we under then? We're under the new law or the new covenant of Christ, which he established. Well, what parts of the Old Testament law then carry over to the New Testament? Well, it's what Christ repeated in the New Testament. It's what Christ and the apostles repeated. So, for example, when it comes to the Ten Commandments, all nine are repeated in the New Testament except for the Sabbath. That one is not repeated. So that's why we worship on Sunday, the day Jesus resurrected from the dead, instead of the Sabbath, Old Testament, or Saturday because we're under the new covenant of Christ. And so we look at the Old Testament now through the New Testament. 
And so we are no longer under the sacrificial laws or the Levitical laws of clothing because it's all fulfilled in Christ and he established his new covenant. We're not, quote, selectively interpreting Old Testament laws. We're seeing it as fulfilled in Christ. They have been fulfilled in Christ. We go under the new covenant established by Jesus Christ. Next question here, and this is one I get a lot. If God is all good and all powerful, how can he demand the death of children and babies in the Old Testament? That's the question of genocide. You know, in the Old Testament, God commanded Israel to go in and wipe out many of the civilizations there, the Amalekites, the Perizzites, the Moabites and others. God commanded the Israelites to wipe them all out. Well, what's going on here? Well, at this time, Israel is a, quote, theocracy. A theocracy is where God is the ruler of the country. And God often uses Israel as an instrument of judgment on wicked nations that are no longer redeemable. God is patient and God waited hundreds of years for many of these civilizations to repent and turn from him. But when they turned to their wicked ways and were beyond redemption already, then God had to execute his judgment through the nation of Israel. And what was going on in these nations? Well, you look at the Old Testament, and we know from archaeology as well, the things that were going on. There was worship of the god Molech. Well, what's so bad about that? Well, if you look in the Old Testament, for example, 1 Kings chapter 23, the worship of Molech involved child sacrifice. They were burning children in the fire as sacrifice to Molech. There was temple prostitution. There was child prostitution. There was human sacrifice going on, sexual immorality of all kinds, bestiality, all kinds of immorality going on. And with that going on for such an extended period of time, the civilizations were already so corrupt. They were beyond redemption. And so God had to execute judgment upon them. Let me give you an example. Suppose I was the chief of police, all right, and I had the right to execute judgment. And there was a temple right across the street. And everybody knew that they were child trafficking, child prostitution, temple prostitution, child sacrifice, human sacrifice going on over there at that church for several years. And I'm the chief of police, and I come walking in to your church, and you tell me what's going on at that temple. And if I look over and say, well... Uh, let's just leave it. Let's just leave them. You would have me lynched right there. You'd have me thrown out of my office or fired right there on the spot. You're saying, how can you do such an unloving thing and allow this to continue? You ought to take those guys and give them the death penalty or throw them in jail for life, at least, for what they've been doing. You'd be outraged if I did nothing. Well, remember, within God, there's a perfect balance of love, but also of justice, of of grace and mercy, but also righteousness and holiness. And when a wicked civilization has been practicing these atrocities for centuries, eventually God's patience runs out and he executes his justice. That's what a loving God would do. Execute justice on a wicked civilization that can no longer be redeemed. And the reason God wanted them completely wiped out is so that those practices will not enter into the people of Israel or further continue in that area. And we know, unfortunately, Israel did not do that. And what happened? Well, that continued on in the land of Israel and entered into the people of Israel. Where in Second Kings, Second Kings chapter 11, that even King Solomon himself offered child sacrifice, his own children, at the altar of Molech. 
right? So that's how dangerous these beliefs and practices are. That's why God wanted them completely wiped out. And also, it is a measure of grace as well upon the children. In the Bible, although there's not a verse that explicitly says it, uh, my position, and I think there's biblical support for this, that children who do not reach that age of accountability are not able to commit moral acts of sin. Isaiah 7.15 says, Talks about the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and call his name Emmanuel. He shall eat curds and honey before he knows how to refuse evil and choose the good. The land whose two kings you dread will be deserted. So there is a period where children do not know how to refuse evil and choose good they, before they can commit moral acts, willful moral acts of sin. I believe that's before the age of accountability. God grants them grace and they are in heaven with the Lord. And so these children are killed. They do not grow up in these wicked societies, learning these wicked ideas and involved in these practices. And so even in there, God's grace is granted in these acts. God is sovereign. He has the right to execute his judgment on unjust, unrighteous civilizations that do not respond to his call of repentance and do not repent. Now, a question related to that is this. If God flooded the earth during the time of Noah's Ark and killed all the people, isn't that a form of murder? Murder is an unjust taking of an innocent life. And at this time, as you read in Genesis 6, the entire world at that time was completely disobedient to God and involved in wicked atrocities and sin. And so God had the right to bring his judgment upon the earth. And you can read in the Genesis account some of the wickedness that people were involved in. Now, God's grace is extended. How long did he wait for these people to repent and turn to him? Over 100 years. It took Noah over 120 years to build that ark, according to the Genesis passage. Noah is building a giant boat on the land, and it's taken him over 100 years to build. Now, as he is building this huge, huge structure the size of a small aircraft carrier or luxury cruise liner, people are walking by. You think they're noticing? I'm sure they are. And I'm sure many went up and said, what are you doing, my friend? And guess what? Noah was able to tell them about God and call them to repentance. And they did not for over a hundred years. He was up there building an ark. You had a sign right there of God's coming judgment. You had a prophet there named Noah, and they did not repent. Second Peter chapter 3 says, Because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through the water. Talks about Noah preaching. Calls him a preacher of righteousness who preached during that time over a hundred years. Second Peter chapter 2, verse 5. He did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a preacher of righteousness with seven others when he brought flood upon the world of the ungodly. So God waited over a hundred years and Noah was preaching to the people. The ark was a sign that they could not miss for them to return and repent of their sin and turn back to God. And they did not. So finally, God executed his judgment upon the people. So God is just. He gives life. He has the right to take it away when people are involved in sin and will not return. He is just in doing that and righteous in doing that. And God is patient. 
he waits a long time and gives men and women opportunities, many opportunities to repent and turn to him. And when they do not, there's a perfect balance of love and justice in God. Then his justice executes his righteous judgment there. Now, here's another frequent Bible question that I get asked, and there's two or three questions related to this. So we'll hit the first one. It says, was the universe created in seven days? The answer is no. The universe was not created in seven days. Look at the biblical text. What does it say? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. In the beginning, God created the Hebrew word there is bara. Out of nothing, God created the heavens and the earth. Verse 2, the very next verse says this, The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. So the universe is already there before day one. It says the earth was without form and void, darkness over the face of the deep. So the earth is there, and it says the earth was covered in water. The Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. So the earth is established and the atmosphere is there enough so that we can have water here upon the earth. That's how we find the earth. And then verse 3, and God said, let there be light. And there was light. Day one doesn't begin the universe. Before day one, the earth is already there. But it's in a lifeless form, according to verse 2. It's void, darkness over the surface of the deep. The Spirit of God hovering over the waters. There is water upon the earth. And it is without life. Day one begins life on the earth, right? So the universe doesn't begin on day one. The universe is already there. The earth is already there. It just doesn't have life. Verse three is day one there. It says, and let there be light. The Hebrew word there is asa. Let the light come forward. So the light comes forward and breaks through the darkness. So day one is the establishment of the light and darkness rotation there, day and night. That's the first day. So the universe doesn't begin on day one. The universe is already there, and the earth is already there. It's in a lifeless form. Day one is when God begins to bring life to the earth, all right? And that's when he says, let there be light, let the light come forward. The Hebrew word there is asa. Okay, so the universe is not created in seven days. Life to the earth comes in those seven days. The universe is already there. The next question is related to this. How old is the universe and the earth? Well, we don't know. All right. According to the Genesis passage there, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The universe is created. And when we come upon verse 2, the earth is already there. It's without form and void, darkness over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God hovering over the face of the waters. So the earth is there and water covers the earth. That's how we find the earth when we begin day one, all right? When God says, let there be light or let the light come forward. How long was the earth in that state of lifelessness? That's what we don't know. It could have been just a few moments or from the way the language in the Hebrew is saying it, it appears to be that it's been there for some time. In fact, some scholars will say the Hebrew word there, void and dark, without form and void, darkness, the Hebrew, there is tohu vabohu. It's a, a rhyme there and it signifies judgment. Some kind of judgment has taken place. Right? When you see that phrase in the Old Testament, some kind of judgment has taken place. We see that in Jeremiah 4 and Jeremiah 
19. So some people feel that perhaps Satan and the angels, you know, were judged during this period. But whatever it may be, we don't know how long the earth has been in that state. Right then in verse three, we begin day one. So how old is the earth? Well, we really don't know. Hey, the scientific measurements out there, the expansion rate of the universe, the speed of light, the formation of stars, you know, on and over 50 dating methods seem to show that the universe and the planet is pretty old, maybe 14 billion years old. That's one view. All right. Young earth creationists will take the position that the earth is maybe six to 10,000 years old. Old earth creationists also take the biblical account literally, and they'll say that they don't have a problem with the dating methods that the earth and the universe is billions of years old. The question is, when does life come to the earth? All right. And so how old is the planet and the universe? Well, it depends if you're going to take a young earth position or an old earth position, but you need to see which one is consistent with the biblical text there. And I have no problem with either view, all right, with either view, because the universe and the earth is already there before day one. And how long it's been in that condition, we don't know. All right. Now, the question is, does the age of the earth affect the biblical account? No, it does not. You can be a young earth or old earth creationist and consistently hold to the Genesis account. Does it affect the arguments for the existence of God? No, it does not. For example, if I leave my computer, if I leave the parts on the table, how many years will it take for it to become a computer? A thousand years? Ten thousand years? A million years? A billion years? Well, it'll never become a computer until an intelligent mind comes and puts it together. So really, the age of the earth doesn't affect any of the arguments for the existence of God. Another scientist put it to me this way. If I dropped computer parts 5,000 feet above the ground, would it become a computer? Or if I dropped computer parts from 100,000 miles above the earth, uh, that's almost impossible. Let's say 10,000 miles above the earth. Would it hit the ground and become a computer? No, it wouldn't. Age doesn't matter here when it comes to arguments for the existence of God. And unfortunately, the age of the earth has been a dividing point amongst Christians. Unfortunately, it shouldn't be a dividing point. That's a secondary issue. If you read some of the top commentaries out there and some of the top Old Testament scholars, you know, Waltke, Allen, Gleason Archer, and some of the great scholars and apologists, they hold to different views, old earth and young earth creationism. I have studied under both. I see both arguments and how both dialogue and they're friends and they work together in the defense of the gospel. So unfortunately for many, it's been a dividing point. It really shouldn't be a point that divides us. We should take the Genesis account literally and not let this be a dividing point between Christians as far as the age of the earth and the age of the universe. Now, the second question is related here. Where do dinosaurs appear in the Bible? Well, if you take a young earth creationist perspective, then men and dinosaurs live together at the same time. And where do you find dinosaurs in the Bible? It's possible. It's possible. There's several interpretations on this one, but it's possible that Job chapter 40, you have a couple beasts, behemoth and leviathan. People see those as possible dinosaurs. 
right? But if you read other commentaries and others, there's other possibilities of what these animals are as well. But those Job 40 and 41, speaking of behemoth and leviathan, could possibly be dinosaurs there. If you hold to an old earth creationist position, then dinosaurs died out thousands of years before man appeared upon the earth. Okay? So those are your answers there. And it depends upon which position you hold regarding the age of the earth. Uh, the next question here re is regards to the flood. You know, was the flood regional or was it worldwide? Well, there's two positions on that as well. All right. Some take that the entire world was under a worldwide flood. And, uh, you know, there's some evidence for that. There are others who hold that it's a regional flood, okay, according to the author's perspective. And in the Bible, there are times when the term world can mean the entire world. And there are times when world can mean from the author's perspective. For example, in Genesis chapter 41, verse 57, it talks about the famine laying waste to the land of Egypt and Joseph preparing for the famine because of the revelation God had given to him, stores up food in Egypt so that Egypt is the only place that has grain in that territory. And, and chapter 41, verse 57 of Genesis says, moreover, all the earth came to Egypt to Joseph to buy grain because the famine was severe over all the earth. Don't think people from China and India and, and Southeast Asia were coming to Joseph for food. So here you see when it talks about all the earth, it's speaking from the author's perspective. Once again, in Luke chapter 2, it says, In those days a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. Well, don't think a census was taken in China and India and Southeast Asia and others. Here when it says all the world, it's speaking of the Roman world or from the perspective of the author. So if it's not a violation of inerrancy for Luke to be doing that, it wouldn't be one if Moses is doing that either. So if you take a regional flood position, then the term world is speaking from the author's perspective. Uh, how did Noah fit all the animals on the ark? You can see with teenagers, uh, Noah's flood is a story of intrigue for them. Well, if taxonomists have shown that what Noah needs are land-walking animals, one pair of every land-walking mammal, all right? He doesn't need to bring alligators on the ark. They can survive fine in the water. One young person asked me, well, there's over a million species of insects. How'd he get them all on the ark? Well, he doesn't need a cage for every species of insect. Okay? He doesn't need a cage for a flea, a cage for a mosquito. Where there are animals, there are insects, all right? And there are other insects that can survive in the water, you know, mosquito larvae and others, or in the vegetation that's floating around. Several species of ants are very hardy floating on vegetation there in waters when areas get flooded. So he doesn't have to build a cage for every insect there are. All he needs are to bring two of every land-walking mammal onto the ark. And most mammals are not the size of a sheep, but let's just say they're about the size of a sheep, okay? And he only has to bring one. He doesn't have to bring every kind of dog there is, just one pair. Well, taxonomists have figured out if Noah did that, the size of the ark, then he could fit all the land-walking mammals on the bottom two stories. And on the third story, there'd be enough room for storage and his family. So he could fit those land-walking mammals upon the ark. That wouldn't be a problem for him. So that is a very reasonable and very plausible story. Also remember, if God exists, miracles are possible. 
And if God can create the universe out of nothing, it's no problem for him to aid Noah in building the ark and preserve Noah and his family upon the ark during the time of the flood. Well, with that question, that brings an end to our time of the question and answer time. Uh, for now, these are tough questions teens ask from our youth conference recently held here in Hawaii. I'll be back again to answer some more questions next time when we're together here on Evidence and Answers. But for more detailed answer on these tough questions, go to our website at evidenceandanswers.org. You can hear interviews and also read articles addressing some of these very difficult issues brought up for us here by these teens. I hope you enjoyed this time. We'll see you again whether at our conferences or here on the radio, here at Evidence and Answers. We've run out of time. Thank you for joining us here on Evidence and Answers radio broadcast. We hope you enjoyed today's show. If you would like Pat to speak at your church, Bible study, or perhaps hold an apologetics conference, Give him a call locally in Hawaii. That number is 4830586. Or you may contact him through the Evidence and Answers website. That's evidenceandanswers.org. To keep broadcasts like Pat's on the air, we rely on generous support from you. For the opportunity to donate, head on over to our website. Once again, that's evidenceandanswers.org. You may do so right there on our homepage. You'll also find we have a wide variety of resources available to you. So be sure to share our website with those around you. Join us again next time on the air or online as we provide compelling reasons for faith in Christ. That's Evidence and Answers with Pat Zugran. Break, break, break.